Good morning. Um, the scripture today uh, comes from the book of 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and that's on page 996 of the Church Bibles. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, un unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for, am for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. But just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and dis sorry, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those two men. Thanks, Mary Grace. If you'd like to keep that passage open in front of you, and we'll look at that together. And as we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, the time that we get to spend in it. Now we uh, pray that as we do, that you would speak to us uh, by your spirit, that we would understand more of who you are, what it is to, to know you, what it is to hear you, and uh, what it is to be transformed uh, by uh, your truth and what you have to say to us today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, have you ever been conned? Uh, the chances are that you will have at least been on the receiving end of an attempted scam. You only really need to open up your spam folder in your email to see uh, that, you know, some email from a, a distant relative that you never knew existed who is desperate to send you a, a fortune if you just pass on your account details. Uh, you know, some cons are fairly obvious, uh, but there have been warnings recently about uh, how scam artists are becoming increasingly sophisticated in their methods uh, around the changes in the energy price cap there were numerous warnings from power companies about scammers posing as, as well-known energy providers using their logos and uh, fake websites to convince people that they were genuine. And the repeated warning from those companies is that they would never ask for your bank details by email or, or text message. Uh, spotting a scam can be hard and we need to watch out for the warning signs. And the same is true when it comes to the teaching that we listen to as Christians. Uh, we've seen already in 2 Timothy that it's not always easy to spot the scammers. False teachers use spiritual language and they subtly twist it. They share messages that can sound very appealing. And so we need to be on our guard. We need to know what to look out for. And really, that's what the passage that we're looking at today 
is about. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Paul lay out what a faithful ministry looks like, both in terms of the, the content of its teaching and the character of the minister. But as we turn to chapter 3, we see Paul warn Timothy about the contrasting character and ministry of the false teachers. And we do well to heed this warning so that we can recognize false teaching when we see it. So if you look with me at verse 1, Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now that is quite a list, isn't it? What are we meant to make of it? Well, Paul's warning here about difficult times in the last days. As we've seen already in this letter, the false teachers had been telling the church in Ephesus that the resurrection had already happened. And what they meant by that was that the future benefits of the resurrection, like an end to suffering, they were available to Christians now. These false teachers, they took the future benefits of the resurrection and they collapsed them into the present. Uh, and that false teaching, we see it today in uh, the prosperity gospel, a message that says that if you just have enough faith, then you can expect health and wealth in this life, not difficulty. But throughout this letter, we have seen Paul preach a very different message, a message that says that with faithfulness to the gospel comes suffering that a Christian should not expect a life of ease and prosperity, that the pattern of our Savior's life was suffering before glory. And so we shouldn't be too surprised or discouraged when suffering comes. Instead, we are to endure it in the power of God, strengthened by the grace that is ours in Christ. That's exactly how Paul lived as he wrote from a Roman dungeon bound in chains for his faithfulness to Jesus. I wonder as you uh, deal with different challenges in your life, are you dealing with them with the attitude that if you just get this thing sorted, if you just had that, that thing that you're looking for, then you would get to a point where life would be easy and things would just cruise along. Well, that day in these last days isn't coming. There are challenges, there are sufferings that we face as part of living in a fallen world and if we're faithful to Jesus. And this long list in chapter three blows the idea of an easy life out of the water. But we might wonder, with his reference to the last days, is Paul talking here about some time in the future where things are going to look like this? 
Well, whenever Paul uses the term the last days, he's actually talking about the time between Christ's resurrection and his return. And that, that's, of course, the time that we are living in right now. After Jesus rose to life again, he promised his disciples that one day he would return to earth. Uh, for the past 2,000 years, we have been living in the last days. And, and certainly, we could go through that list, and no doubt we could tick each characteristic off as evident in our society today. All of these things on that list are sins that we see around us. And as we reflect on our own lives, if we're honest with ourselves, there will be things on that list that we have seen in us. But as he shares this list, it's evident from the context that Paul is not referring primarily to the world out there. He's talking about an influence on the church from those who would say that they are on the inside. What he's doing is describing a list of characteristics that are evident in the false teachers. Such a contrast to the list we were looking at the other week about the characteristics of a faithful ministry. Now, how do we know that he's referring primarily to false teachers? Well, we see it in his warning in verse 5, to avoid such people. He's talking about a specific group of people who are guilty of a particular thing. It's a damning list, and we don't have time to go through each characteristic one by one. I recognize this is probably already the longest series on Second Timothy that you're ever likely to hear. But what I want us to notice is the way that this list is framed. Notice at the beginning and at the end, Paul focuses on the ways in which the false teacher's love is misplaced. They are, they are people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure rather than God. And Paul's making a very important point that what we love, what we cherish, it will shape the rest of our character and our behavior. These false teachers, first and foremost, they loved themselves. And the devastating list that follows is where love of self leads when it replaces love for God. It's a bit like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. His character is shaped by his love for the ring. He calls it, my precious. He becomes consumed by it. Nothing else matters to him. If my starting point is my love for myself, then everything that I do will be orientated towards how I can best serve myself. That will be my driving motivation. And the characteristics listed here, they focus on the damage that is done to others when our overriding desire is how we can please ourselves. Gollum didn't care what suffering he caused as long as he could possess the ring. And the person driven by self-love will inevitably harm those around them. Another way of describing this self-love that Paul refers to here is what the Bible calls sin. 
And it's important for us to understand that we never sin in isolation. Our sinful attitudes and actions, they have an impact on those around us. And this side of eternity, we need to recognize that we'll all struggle with this love of self. That all of us have the potential to cause harm to others through our pride and our selfishness. And the Christian life is about day by day in the power of God's Spirit, directing our love away from ourselves and directing it to love for God. It's about pursuing the characteristics that we were looking at last week. Kindness, patience, gentleness, all characteristics that flow from a love for God and others. But the people that Paul is writing about here these false teachers, they'd been consumed by a love for themselves. They pretended to be godly, but in truth, they had no desire for God. And they were causing terrible damage to the church. And in verse 6, Paul gives a specific example of how that was playing out in Ephesus. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, what are we meant to do with this? What is Paul saying here? You know, sometimes people have the view of the Bible that it gives a very negative perception of women. And Paul in particular is cited as a major culprit. And a verse like this, on the surface of it, it just seems to confirm that accusation. So how are we meant to understand what Paul is saying here? Well, first of all, just to be clear, Paul is not saying all women are weak and easily led astray by false teachers. And there are a couple of reasons that we know that's not what he is saying. For one, this letter is framed at the beginning and they end with Paul citing examples of strong, faithful women who knew their Bibles very well. In chapter 1, he gives thanks for Timothy's mother and grandmother who raised him in the faith from a young age. And at the end, he sends greetings to Priscilla, who's often referenced in his letters as a faithful co-worker who'd served alongside him in numerous situations. Paul was not anti-women. Far from it. Uh, secondly, throughout this letter, Paul also calls out specific men for false teaching. We've seen him warn against the teaching of Phygelus, Hermogenes, Hymenaeus, and Philetus. In fact, this whole section is a warning against men who were false teachers. In verse 8, he describes them as men who oppose the truth and men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now, raising those specific situations didn't make Paul anti-men any more than raising specific situations about women made him anti-women. And we know it's a specific situation because of the details that he gives in verse 6. That reference to households in verse 6, in the Greek, it actually says the households. 
Evidently, Paul was referring to certain homes that were apparently well-known. They may have been the homes of wealthy women who made them available for meetings, which would explain why the false teachers were targeting them specifically. Paul also highlights the fact that these women were in a vulnerable situation. They were, verse 6, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So the false teachers had clocked their vulnerability and saw them as ideal candidates for their message. And once they'd infiltrated their homes, they had the opportunity to spread their message among the whole household. It's insidious stuff. Now, there are some great examples of wealthy women in the New Testament who opened up their homes for churches to meet. Lydia in Philippi would be an obvious example. But it may have been the case that in this particular situation, the wealth of these women meant that they had more disposable time than most. These particular women were vulnerable and they were available. They were prime candidates for being exposed to the false message that these guys had to share. And it's worth reflecting on how exposed all of us are to unhelpful teaching that might influence us. You know, we live at at a time where we have never had so much access to information. On average, we spend something between four to seven hours a day on a screen. The internet opens up to us endless possibilities to hear new ideas and views through blogs and podcasts and social media posts. Now, some of the information that we can access can be really helpful, but some of it has the potential to be damaging. And the content that we access online, it's not neutral. Uh, The Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, lifts the lid on the the dangerous impact of social networking. Uh, Tech experts who've worked for some of the biggest companies in the world, they explain how the whole system is designed to maximize profit and how it uses algorithms to drive particular content to individual users based on their interests. So the more you access particular content, the more of that content is driven in your direction. And the echo chamber that is created then influences your outlook and your behavior. The documentary came out a short time before the enforced isolation of the the pandemic, which, if anything, has accelerated the impact of all of this on our thinking and our behavior. And Christians certainly aren't immune from it. Uh, We've been influenced in ways that perhaps we don't even realize. One of the things about that list in verse 1 to 5 is that it is actually quite hard to work out where the world ends and the church begins. And perhaps that's the point. Sometimes the church can become so influenced by the culture that it becomes hard to tell the difference. And so it's worth stopping and asking ourselves, who or what am I listening to? What am I reading? What am I being shaped by? How much has my thinking and my behavior 
been shaped by the culture that Paul describes in the first five verses of this chapter. And where do I need to bring that thinking and behavior in line with God's Word? And where do I need to be aware of teachers who are communicating a message that's false? Uh, These false teachers had crept into households, and they were giving a false message that ultimately couldn't save. Paul refers to the knowledge of the truth in verse 7. When he uses that term, he's talking about the knowledge that leads to salvation, the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the message of the gospel. But these false teachers, they were sharing a message that opposed the gospel. And in verse 8, Paul likens them to Pharaoh's magicians who opposed Moses in the book of Exodus. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So Janus and Jambres, they opposed God's servant, Moses. They opposed the message that God sent Moses to declare. And Paul says that's exactly what these false teachers were doing. They might have the appearance of godliness. Their message might be attractive. It may have met with approval from their culture. It may have even drawn a crowd. But ultimately, it didn't lead to a knowledge of the truth. It didn't lead people to salvation. And in the end, verse 9, Paul says, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. So these false teachers, they might have enjoyed some success for a while, and that may have been really discouraging for Timothy to see as they they led people astray. But Paul reassures him that they won't get very far. Like Janus and Jambres, their foolishness would be exposed for all to see. Now, maybe you've seen the damage done by false teaching. Maybe uh, you're aware of churches where, where core truths of the Christian faith, truths like the divinity of Christ, uh, the physical resurrection, are denied by those who would claim to be ministers. Or, or maybe you've seen people buy into false prosperity teaching that ruins the hearers. Or a message that says that it's all about your moral performance. It's all about what you do. Now, seeing those things is really discouraging. But we can take heart from Paul's closing words here. Ultimately, false teaching fails. It fails because it is opposed to the truth. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't lead to salvation. It leads to death. And those scammers who creep in with a false message, they won't get very far. Their folly will be exposed and the truth will prevail. Because there's only one message that ultimately leads to salvation. Only one message that is ultimately true. And that is the message of the gospel. The message that says that only in Jesus Christ is there forgiveness. Forgiveness for all the times that we have put our love of self 
before our love for God. That only in Jesus Christ can the proud, the arrogant, the disobedient, the ungrateful, the lovers of money and pleasure find grace and mercy that they don't deserve. And that's because on the cross, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. It's only in Jesus Christ that eternal life is to be found. Because the one who died rose to life again, defeating death. And he has promised that one day he will return. And he will bring these last days of difficulty to an end once and for all. And until that day, his church is called to keep proclaiming the truth whatever opposition we might face, in the knowledge that the truth of the gospel will keep transforming lives. It will be the one message that will last until one day our suffering gives way to glory. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word we pray that we would have confidence in it, that we would be shaped by not a love for ourselves, but a love for you. Lord, we cannot do this by ourselves. We need your Spirit's power at work in our hearts, shaping us and renewing us to be more and more like our Savior Jesus. And so we pray that every time we're tempted to look away, that you would draw us to you, that we would grow more and more in the likeness of Christ, um, that we would be a people who love the truth of your word, who desire to be shaped by it, uh, that we would bring our lives in line with it. We're so conscious, Lord God, of a, living in a time where there's so much that bombards us so much information, so many ideas. Lord, would you give us wisdom to discern truth from error? And would you help us, Lord God, to be a people who don't just puff up our heads full of knowledge, but are a people who are shaped profoundly, that our hearts would be shaped to desire you and to love you and to love one another well, so that the world around us might see something that is so different and yet so attractive that it draws them to know the one at the heart of it all. The one who chose not to love himself but poured himself out for the sake of others. Our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.